0: Ecclesiastes. And this morning, I want to preach a sermon entitled, No Gain. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 11. Today's the beginning of a journey into one of the least preached, at least expositorily, least preached books of the entire Bible. John Piper and others have said that Ecclesiastes is the most difficult book in the Bible to exposit. For the first couple of weeks, while reading through this in preparation for this sermon series, I had to agree with that assessment. (laughs) There was a point at which I thought I'll retract my previous statement and move to Romans. And some of you would have amen that. But after a couple months of study, and thinking, and praying, and talking to others, and reading, the deeper I moved into and concentrated on the material given to us by the writer in the book of wisdom, I've begun to love it. This writing has something to say to our world, our culture, our church, and our homes. It answers one of the deepest questions of life. What is the meaning of life under the sun and this is the question that so many people are asking right now if you'll be honest many of you are asking this question this morning and you might be one of the people questioning the point of your existence We look all around us and we see conflict, disease, death. If we're honest, it's hard to make sense out of the reason that so many people suffer. They suffer while others seem to prosper so much. And our culture is consumed with consuming Our culture at large has decided to do one of two things, it seems. One is to commit suicide. Or the other is to numb the pain with mindless entertainment. We as a society value material possessions over relationship. Status symbols over substance. Popularity over character. Sexual sin over covenant love. Knowledge over true wisdom. And the writer of Ecclesiastes could have written his words to most people in our day directly. This question is not new to mankind, in other words. Man has been asking this question since Adam chose to rebel against God in the garden and was removed from the garden to face a life of futility. That was the promise of God to him. You will face futility. You will toil and you will try to bear fruit in a ground and a soil that produces for you thorns and thistles all the days of your life. And by the sweat of your brow you will live. That's a statement as much theological as it is about physical labor. Your work will frustrate you. Men, amen. Not to be outdone, God then turned in that same time to the woman and said, You will bear children in pain and suffering, and your desire will be for your husband. It will be, in other words, your desire will be to rule over your husband, and yet your husband will rule over you. Women, can I get a hearty amen to the futility of the role it feels sometimes that you've been given by God to play? I know, you you ladies are biblical, you don't speak in public, you just shake your head. (laughs) It was getting a little bit thick in here, so I had to. (laughs) The lack of satisfaction has been said and sung since the day of Adam's sin and his sin in the garden. From Lamech, crying out to the world that he had killed his thousands upon thousands, to the Rolling Stones, who sang an iconic anthem of their age when they said, I can't get no satisfaction. Keith Richards wrote that guitar lick, by the way, after dreaming it over and over one night. He woke up and immediately began to play it, and Mick Jagger wrote the words. Keith Richards never wanted the song recorded because he thought it was silly. But listen to what Mick Jagger said about that word. I know I can safely say you know Satisfaction. If you don't know that song, then go home and listen to it at least once. It defined a generation. It's played over and over. In movies, it's talked about endlessly. You can know, if I wanted to, I could sing a little bit and you would immediately, even you young kids would recognize it. But this is what he said about writing that song. Satisfaction was my view of the world. My frustration with everything. Disgust with America. It's advertising syndrome. The constant barrage. He might not have known it, but he was expressing the very attitude of the writer of Ecclesiastes when he wrote those words. No one can find satisfaction under the sun. So let's read this passage that opens this great book of wisdom. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I want to preach a sermon this morning entitled, No Gain, from this passage. And it's the first of 16 sermons in this book of Ecclesiastes, which we're calling the series, you see uh, on the screen uh, the, there, uh, No Game. But the title of the series is Finding Meaningless. And I know you want meaninglessness, but actually the writer of, he- of Ecclesiastes says, you're finding wealth meaningless. You're finding, you're finding sex meaningless. You're finding stat- status Meaningless. You're finding wisdom and knowledge meaningless. It's all meaningless. The writer of this book of wisdom says that everything under the sun is meaninglessness. And we know that everyone is searching for meaning. The question is, how do we find the meaning in a seemingly meaningless world? No gain. There is no gain. Our text tells us that people gain Nothing from all their toil under the sun. First, we're introduced to the writer of the book. The, the writer is introduced to us, sort of. No name is attached to this book. No name is ever mentioned for a writer in this book. A title is given. Koaleth, in the Hebrew, which means something like preacher or teacher. You might see it translated. Or sage, wise man. And then he goes on and he identifies himself here with the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's from these words that many in the early church especially and even in the Jewish world attached this writing to Solomon. It was sat sat alongside Proverbs and Job and the Song of Solomon as wisdom literature. For many years, The authorship of this book was assumed, but as the reformers came on the stage and began to ask questions, particularly Martin Luther, some questions rose up out of the book itself that caused some issues with this understanding. Things like chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, if... You read that on its face by itself, you might say, well, that's no big deal. He's, it's, it's an old man. He stepped down from the throne, and he's been succeeded by one of his sons. And so now he's writing as the former king. You notice the past tense. I have been. I was in the past the king over Jerusalem. The problem with this is that the historical books give us the plain teaching that Solomon died as king. There was no period of Solomon's life where, at the end of his life, where he wasn't king as far as we know. And then in verse 16 of chapter 1, notice it says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all, all, plural, who were over Jerusalem before me. Well, the problem here is is that there there was only one other king of Israel that ruled from Jerusalem before Solomon, David. Saul never ruled from Jerusalem. And so this brings a question. These are the questions that the reformers were bringing up as they read this book. And then they also noticed that the first three chapters depend heavily on this idea of the preacher king of Israel. But after that, completely gone. Never brought up again. It just disappears. And so we're starting to piece some things together in chapter 4. Verses one through three. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the one side of their oppressors, they there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who already uh, who already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, it's interesting that he writes this objection to the power of Israel, isn't it? Solomon as king would have been able to do something about this. He would have been able to stop this oppression. So this writer claims there's nothing that can be done about it. And then in 5, verses 7 through 8, he says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. If you see a province, the oppression of the poor, and violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high officials is watched by a higher, and there are higher ones over them. Now, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivating fields. Cultivated fields. So here the writer is again raising an objection against the king. It's a rather strange thing for Solomon to be doing. Raising an objection against himself. So again, these internal things to the Bible, to the word, were raising up these questions. And then finally, I'll just say one more thing. 10, 20... Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now this is a statement about the apparent uh, paranoia of the king. A bird's going to carry your words to him. And he's like stalking and has all these people listening to you outside your window. That's just, again, very strange thing for him to write if this writer is Solomon so why would the writer then if it's not Solomon why would he adopt a Solomonic persona well easily so because it's the way to add credibility to the writing and the majority of what he wrote was a virtual quotation of Solomon so what we say when we say it wasn't written by him Solomon is not to say it wasn't the wisdom of Solomon It's to say He didn't put pen to quill. He didn't write it down in his day, it doesn't appear. But what we have for us is a preservation of the negative side of the Proverbs. The Proverbs are positive Solomonic wisdom. Son, do this. Son, do that. Son, don't go that direction. Go this direction. And in Ecclesiastes, we see the backside, which is son went the wrong way and all is vanity. And so what I'm saying is, is whether Solomon wrote it exactly, wrote it down in the 10th century, or whether it was collected over time and preserved for the Hebrew orally until later in the 3rd century when it might have been written down on the return from the exile, it would have been very helpful during that day, I might say. Because what I'm trying to say is not that Solomon had nothing to do with it, but I'm just trying to help you understand that what we have in front of us is wisdom collected from God by Solomon and others so that we can live a life free from the vanity that they talk about in this, in this book. Tremper Longman says this, he's probably a wisdom teacher, the writer, one who speaks as an insider when he critiques Koholeth. Furthermore, he addresses his son in a manner typical of other wise teachers. And so the audience of this letter, of this book, are young men in the aristocracy, living in Jerusalem, trying to rebuild and regain status. And they're chasing after that status through all the things that we will talk about in the weeks to come. Now that's verse one. In verse two, the writer gives us the theme of the entire book, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What we have here is Hebrew superlative. When you see the Hebrew writers repeating something, for instance, holy, 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 or the holy of holies, or heaven of heavens, you've heard these expressions all through the Old Testament, they're emphasizing it, They're, they're shouting it. The preacher is calling out to the whole nation and indeed the whole world. All of this under the sun stuff is fruitless, meaningless. This book is going to put us face to face with the futility of life under the sun. And in verse 2, he tells us right off the bat, vanity is a word that's going to be repeated 35 more times. This phrase, vanity of vanities, is going to be repeated over and over and over and over so that we don't miss it. He doesn't leave a square inch of God's world without saying, oh yeah, that's vanity too. The Hebrew word means meaningless or futile. But it can also mean vapor and mist. Like in Psalm 39.5, it's been translated for us, You have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely everyone stands a mere breath. Havel, that's the word for the Hebrew here. Breath. Puff of smoke. Now, not in the Hebrew language, but James in the New Testament, doesn't he tell us this about life? James 4, 14, you are a mist which appears for a little while and then vanishes. There's absolute, this is absolutely true. Life is short. The oldest among us. You could sit down with the oldest among us, and they would tell you that the older they get, the shorter their life is, and the shorter it has been. I know all of you under 10s in the room, if you're here and not in the big, in the, in the big uh, celebration of kids and Foundations of Grace today, or even you teenagers, you're like, no, you don't understand, Carl, my life isn't like that. It's just a drumbeat, and it's slow. It feels like Christmas will never get here. And then I have Christmas, and it's over so fast. And then I got to wait a whole another year, and it's so long. Right, this is the way we counted time as little children, wasn't it? Like, when's my birthday? Okay, I look forward to that. And then you had your birthday, and you're like, well, when's Halloween? We'll get a lot of candy, and that take a long time to get there. And then the big, the big enchilada. You know, like we're going to go for Christmas. And then you were unfortunate like me or Amy and your birthday was within a month of Christmas. It all came at one time. And then the rest of the year was a vanity. It was all vanity. (laughs) But time seemed to just barely drip along. But let me tell you something, just as a 43-year-old, still pretty young, time speeds up, it seems. The older you get, the less time you have. The older you get, it feels like yesterday you were that five-year-old with the pop gun or the BB gun, maybe shooting your eye out at Christmas. Life is a vapor. But it's not just a vapor. I don't want us to miss the main emphasis here is not the vaporishness of life, but rather the meaninglessness of life. Whether short or long, it doesn't matter. It's all meaningless. That's what the writer wants us to know. What does a man, we know that because of the context, verse 3, what does a man gain by all of his toil under the sun? He's not talking about short. He's just talking about futile. Seems to mean nothing. The theme To be addressed by a writer is the fact that people gain nothing for all their toil under the sun because it's all vanity, meaningless, futile. It's a pointed question that we need to discuss, isn't it? I was talking with my son this week about this sermon, and he said, Dad, he reminded us, he was at Sermon Collab, and he reminded us, hey, don't hurry up to get to the answer because there's about 30 or 40% of us that really struggle from this mindset, this nihilistic mindset. It's our preset condition, in a sense. We look at the world and we see no hope, we see no future, we see no meaning. All you happy folks want to run to the answer, but I want y'all to kind of sit with me, and feel it. So, thanks to Noah, you get to sit for a long time in this sermon and give me the answer. Right? But isn't it important? I'm going to promise you something. If you hadn't felt it yet, you're going to feel it. Your closest friend is going to die suddenly. Your marriage is going to come crumbling to the ground the person you admire the most in the world is going to be found to be sexually immoral and abusive. No one is spared from some time in their life feeling exactly like this. The expected answer to the question in verse 3 is nothing. What does a man gain from all of his toil under the sun? Nothing. He doesn't gain anything. This word gain that's used right here in our text is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's only here. And it's used to speak about the excess of a year's wage. So you work hard and you keep your money. You have some left over. That's gain. Everything else you had to spend to live, not counting that, this is the extra of life. Remember, this is going to young men receiving wisdom, dealing with post-exile rebuilding of Jerusalem, trying also to rebuild the fame of this great nation. They're focused on possessions, amassing wealth that had been lost, rebuilding material and physical structures in a great city, and being upwardly mobile in society. These are the aristocrats of their society. So Coeleth wants his sons to know that everything you are doing right now is meaningless, meaningless money, meaningless prosperity, meaningless all of it is meaningless. No matter what they have left after a year's worth of wages, it's all worthless in the end. It will never satisfy you in it. It will never sustain you. You'll feel like that hamster on the wheel running and running and running and running and running and making no progress, son. You will feel that under the sun. It's equally important to see the this-worldness of this perspective in this writer. Do you notice it? What does a man gain from all of his toil? What? Where? Under the sun. See, what our writer is not going to introduce to us, except for little peaks throughout the writing, is that there is one who is not under the sun. He is above it. And he is giving rhyme and reason to everything, whether you feel it or not. The feeling you have cannot be trusted because you are not the greatest source of knowledge. The feeling you have is real, in other words. You're sitting here today feeling like everything's meaningless. That's a true feeling. But it's not the ultimate truth. Don't live by that feeling. Don't live by that feeling. Tell that feeling. Preach the gospel to that feeling. You get up at 4.30. You go to work in a blue-collar job. You get home, you're exhausted. The news is on with more reported deaths, more reported cases. Your next-door neighbor has fallen. You had to go help her up. Your children are going maniacal at the end of the day. All you want to do is sit down and eat and go to bed. It all feels like Too much to bear. And guess what? You get to go to bed around 10.30 or 11 and get up at 4 and go back to 4.30 work and do it all again. Vanity, can I not say it? You're a mother. You're a mother and you're young and you've got young children. And you're changing diapers and burping babies and feeding babies and changing clothes for the 4th or 5th or 8th or 25th time and washing them, and putting them back in a drawer, and taking care of the rest of your house, and cooking dinner. And your husband comes home like a blockhead, throws his stuff down, and plops down exhausted in his meaninglessness. And he doesn't even notice how you feel. He doesn't even ask you how your day was. No child gets up from the table of peas, cornbread, and chicken, and says, that was the most fantastic meal I've ever had. But you slaved at it. And in your heart and mind, you say, what does it matter? If I left, who would even care? You're a college student getting a degree that you already know you're never going to use. (laughs) <laughs> I knew I'd get pulling on that one. What am I doing studying at 1 o'clock in the morning to pass a test that nobody's going to care if I passed or failed it in tomorrow? But see, the perspective for all of us can be skewed by the fact that we're trapped in the day-to-day mundane rhythm of this life and that's exactly what our writer does look what he does he answers his question not with a straightforward nothing but rather he turns our eyes to some rhythms some examples from nature now notice this first example because I bet you read it as I was reading it and you may have read it since I read it the first time and read it generations come and generations go is that the way your mind thought that's not what he wrote notice what he says generations go and generations come He seems to be emphasizing the the rapidity with which they get out of the way off the main stage and another one steps on, and another one steps on, and another one steps on. But the earth is unchanged. Everything is the same. Guess what you're doing? You're doing what your granddad did and what your great-granddad did and your great-great-granddad did and your great-great-great-great-great-granddad did. It may have functionally changed in the fact that we drive cars and work with machines and do a lot of stuff, but what they did and what we did are the same. We try to get enough clothes, food, and shelter to survive, have a little bit of life, and die. That's what we try to do. That's what he's saying. Goes, comes, goes, comes, and the earth stays the same. Nothing really changes. The sun rises, and then it runs around quickly to just rise again. Here's a negative view of the rising of the sun. The psalmist gives us this beautiful picture of a strong man that runs from his tent and is easily seen and then runs into his tent and then comes back again. What a beautiful, glorious picture of this strong man, the sun, running its course as God had ordained over and over again. But the writer of Ecclesiastes takes the negative view. Guess what the sun's going to do in the morning about 5.15? It's going to rise. And what's it going to do about 745 it's going to go down. And then what's it going to do the next day? 516 it's going to rise. Right. Over and over again. The wind does the same. It goes around on its circuits north to south, south to north. The wind just goes around. It makes no progress. It simply goes. All streams run this is not the hydrological cycle he's emphasizing here. He's not talking about we all know the streams run in, they go to the ocean. How do they not fill up, daddy? Well, they evaporate, and they go in clouds over. That's Job. They go in clouds over the desertous places and drop the rain, and then it goes back into the sea. That's not what this writer's doing. This writer's saying, it's getting nowhere. It's like running water in your bathtub with the drain open. It just keeps going down the drain. Visibly, under the sun, all we see is it never fills up. It never runs over. It's all unchanged. All the streams go in the same way. They go down to the ocean, and then they rise again. Some even think that he may have been talking about the Dead Sea, which had no outlet. It just flowed in, turned to a lot of salt, and just got icky and never had an outlet out. All things are full of wearisomeness, tiredness. A man can't see enough and his ears can't hear enough. He's never satisfied. He's always dealing with the futility of his life. This reminds me of a Pink Floyd song. Time. I know. I get bonus points for Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, and Pink Floyd in the same sermon. This is what he said, uh, the, the writer said, in the word, words of time. And you run, and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing round to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. This is what our world Fields, church, your neighbor, your co-worker, your mom, dad, son, daughter, meaninglessness. He gives us natural examples. He gives us the human example, and then he restates the theme for us again in 9, 10 through 11. What has been will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Oh somebody says see this is new like a Nintendo game like that's something new. I mean they had marbles before that, right? Technology doesn't isn't new. It's just different ways to entertain ourselves. Different ways to get the job done. The will was technology in its day. Everything is the same. Nothing seems to change. It's been already in the ages before, and no one will even remember it. Can you imagine working your whole life to get a statue only to have it pulled down in coming generations? Or you walk by buildings on your campus, college students, and you see these names of people. Do you even know who these people are? You don't know who they are. Some of you went to buildings all of your careers and work in them. And it's like, it's the Smith Plaza. Well, who's Mr. Smith? I don't know. It's the guy that names on the building. Does he own the building? I don't know. He's some old dead guy. That's everybody's idea. Even, in other words, if you get to the top of the stack of humanity and you get recognized by statues and named buildings, they will forget about you, the writer says. And guess what? The coming generations will tear your old building down and build a new one in its place and name it after some other great man. Alexander the Great sat on his throne after conquering the known world and basically said what Tom Brady said after he won his fourth Super Bowl. There's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be. For the man or the woman or the child trapped in this perspective, there isn't anything. It all amounts to nothing. think we've soaked a while this is given to us church that we might see by analogy that our writer is stating a perspective but it's not the only nor the redeemed perspective we hold this up and we look at it and we spin it around and we gaze into it and we feel sad and broken And we join him in his sackcloth and ashes. It's all worthless. But then we turn over to Luke chapter 12. And we hear these words of Jesus. Someone in the crowd, verse 13, said to him, Teacher... Tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. What does meaninglessness often lead to? The sin of covetousness. Well, if I just had this, I'd be happy. The man with a fishing boat wants a yacht, and the man with the yacht wants the biggest yacht. And when he gets the biggest yacht, he's bored with it in a few days. Covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. (laughs) The opposite of what our guy's saying, right? And he thought to himself... What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, notice he's getting out from under the sun here. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes will tell us later. But God said to him, fool." This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If you're here today and you feel your life has no purpose, no meaning, it is futile, let me tell you the only way to get out of that is to know the one who is not under the sun contained but outside of the sun Ruling and reigning over it and saying to you, invest your soul in my way and then you will have meaning. In Mark 8, in Mark 8 verse 36, Jesus summarily says, What does a man gain when he gains the whole world in exchange for his, what? Soul. Jeff Bezos, as far as I know, is not a believer. He can gain and double and triple his wealth as long as he lives, but when he dies, he will be a poor, pitiful, naked pauper. And the only thing he should have been begging for in this life, he will have left this life without it, and he will remain a poor, pitiable worm crushed in the wrath of God. He will have gained the world and lost his soul. And we often look at those kind of examples and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like them, but church, is that true or not? What are you living your life for right now? For under the sun... Or for the one who's over the sun? Don't give me the church answer. Give me the answer from your heart and your checkbook. And your mind focus. And your heart. Your passion. Jesus said, where a man lays up his treasure, there will be his heart also. In other words... You don't tell me your heart, and then I go find your treasure. I look at your treasure, and it tells me where your heart is. Is it your children, moms? If you are changing diapers for your children's sake only, it it will wear you into nothing. But when you know you are raising a generation that will know Christ and make him known, it becomes eternally meaningful. Adam, when you put seed in the ground and it comes up, if it's just for the paycheck at the end of the year, meaningless. I know, right? But when you understand that all of your production and others like you has been redeemed by the blood so that it provides for your fellow man, it becomes eternally meaningful. Everything Has meaning, Jesus would say, when your soul is invested in Him and not in this world. And so you gain the world or lose the world, that doesn't matter because He has your soul. Finally, we look at the Apostle Paul who had learned the lesson from his master. Philippians chapter 3 verse 4 says, though I myself myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I have, I count it as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. Listen, you may be running your course trying to be the most religious person in the world. And Paul would say, it's all loss if you come to Christ. It's all loss. In comparison to know Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. From the dead, the Apostle Paul would agree with Ecclesiastes and say, If you live your life for the gain of this world, it is all lost. But if you count the gain of this world as lost to have Christ, then you will be resurrected in the end. And your life has ultimate meaning. And everything around you has a meaning. If we stay in Ecclesiastes, we join those who are taking their lives. I'm just going to be honest with you. If I didn't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't know where the hopelessness would drive me. It would not be good. Either to take my life or to consume my life. But one way or the other, I wouldn't be playing games. I'd be hard after it. And because I do believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm hard after knowing him and the fullness of his resurrection and the future of being with him in glory. And I'm challenging you, church, join me. Leave behind the under the sun perspective. Recognize it, see it, but then say, I know the one who rules the sun, and I want to be with him. Whatever it takes. Loss of everything. It might. Whatever it takes. Let's pray. Father, as we close and we think about what we've just heard from your word. Father, the truth is there are many who are stuck in their feeling of uselessness. Wearisome Tired, torn, tattered, ready to give up. I pray that this message would encourage them, that they would continue to seek after you and the answers that come only from you. And Father, that we as a church would live our lives in obvious obedience to the gospel so that our souls, our souls are gained even if our life is lost.